Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. One of the things that I love about being in the ministry is that there's nothing to do. Excuse me. Just going to catch up on some sleep. I don't know if you've ever had a job where it didn't matter whether or not you show up, you still get paid. That's how I feel in the ministry. It really doesn't matter what I do. In fact, it's very similar to a gentleman by the name of Joaquin Garcia. And this is taken from the Huffington Post, February 15, 2016. Headline, man skipped work for six years and no one noticed until he won an award. For six years, a building supervisor in Spain quietly collected a $41,500 salary from his local government without showing up for work. Joaquin Garcia, 69, was recently fined $30,000 for the extended paid vacation, six-year vacation, from a water treatment plant in Cadiz. That was the maximum penalty the government officials could fine him. According to the deputy mayor, Jorg Blas, It wasn't until Garcia was due to be recognized for his uh, 20-year loyalty that somebody went to his desk and realized his office was vacant. Just as Joaquin was responsible for supervising a building, those of us in the ministry are responsible for supervising a building. The building is the church. And just as Joaquin found out, it really doesn't matter whether or not the supervisor shows up. That's sort of the conclusion that I'm coming to. I mean, there really is no cause for alarm. This week, of course, we had the horrible news in Brussels. At least 13 people died and up to 50 were injured after two explosions rocked Brussels airport in a suspected suicide bombing. Witnesses described seeing dismembered bodies everywhere. After the blast hit the American Airlines check-in desk at around 8 a.m., there were reports that shouts in Arabic were heard before the explosions and shots fired in in the aftermath. I'm not the only one who believes there is no cause for alarm. The President of the United States agrees with me. Report here says President Obama is under fire after having what appears to be a little too much fun during his two-day visit to Argentina in South America, with photos showing the President of the United States doing the tango with a sexy professional dancer on Wednesday night. As MSNBC's Morning Joe panelists, including George Bush's former communications director Nicole Wallace, slammed him for being out of step 
with the American people. A dinner made for royalty, wine toast, and tangoing across the dance floor were some of the last things that should have been on the president's mind on Wednesday night. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And instead of flying home to figure out how to deal with the horrific terrorist attacks in Brussels, as well as upping the security to avoid an attack on American soil, President Obama stayed put in America. Over on CNN, Anna Navarro went off about the optics. I think the entire thing is horrible, she told CNN's John Berman. It reminded me of when he went golfing after James, Foley, James Foley's head was cut off. So President Obama seems to think there's no cause for alarm. In fact, uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani ripped into the president for attending a baseball game in Cuba instead of jumping on his plane and coming home after the Brussels attack. You don't send a picture of yourself laughing while people have just been blown up at a level that is equivalent to September 11th to one of our allies. Unfortunately, this level of terror is the new normal. I think we would all agree, even ourselves, we've become somewhat inured to it. It doesn't have the same shock that it would have had 10 years ago. It's kind of becoming commonplace. Turn with me, brethren, to Isaiah 56. And Brother Jan, could I just ask you for some water, please? Thanks. Isaiah 56. As we adjust to the new normal, just another day at the office, body parts being blown apart, people made in the image of God, seeing heads go that way, legs go that way. Just another day at the office. Isaiah 56, and beginning at verse 9, thanks so much. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 9. All you beasts of the field, come to devour. Yes, all you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Everyone for his gain. And this, this is the critical point here. That men have been appointed as watchmen. Men have been appointed as shepherds. Two roles that require care and concern for others. The reason I'm on the wall is I care about the inhabitants of the city. So my job is to watch, look for signs of danger, and warn the city. The reason I'm a shepherd is my job is to care for the sheep, to look for danger, and to guide the sheep from danger. 
The last thing on earth that somebody would think when you hire a watchman is that he would be up on the wall with no regard for the city. The last thing you would think when you hire a shepherd is that he'd be out in the field with no regard for the sheep, only thinking of himself. But that's what God says is the case with these shepherds and these watchmen. They are concerned about themselves. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as today, only much more abundant. All things continue as they have from the beginning. Nothing has changed. It's all good. No cause for alarm. So as we approach Passover, brethren, what I'd like to do for the sermon is have us consider our role in a changing world. As we, Passover is very rapidly approaching. As we approach it and then as we take it, let's take it, let's approach it and let's take it thinking about and considering what is our role in this rapidly changing world first question there is the pressure of political correctness you can't speak freely i can't speak freely we will be corrected if we step out of line so as the world becomes more and more politically correct what should our response be Let's go to 1 Kings 22. We've been hired to preach the gospel. And as we heard in the Bible study, that's a message that's going to become increasingly unpopular. That's a message that is going to be censored. What should our response be? 1 Kings 22, this is the situation where the king Ahab, or we call him Ahab, in the northern part, Israel, is at war with Syria. 1 Kings 22, verse 1, and they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah from the south, came down to the king of Israel. So now there's a a peace treaty between the king of the north, uh, the Israelites, and the south, the, the Jews. So they have peace between them. And so Jehoshaphat comes down to the king of the north. And the king of Israel said unto his servants, Don't you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours? And we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Jehoshaphat was a a righteous king. He was one of those um, mostly good with a, a couple of provisos. But Jehoshaphat wanted to follow God like his father Asa. And Jehoshaphat said, unto the king of Israel, inquire, I pray thee, 
at the word of the Lord today. So, yeah, I see the issue. I see the problem. And you know what? Your people and my people were all one. So I absolutely support you. But before we go to battle, could I ask you to check and see what the word of the Lord is? Let's, let's make sure we're doing God's will. Something that, of course, uh, uh, Ahab didn't even think of. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. About 400 men. This is serious. Let's gather all the prophets and really inquire what the word of God is. And he said unto them, I'm the king, and I've got a question for you. I really want to go to Ramoth Gilead and, and take over Syria, because it's ours. Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they gave him the politically correct answer. They could read him. They understood what he wanted. So 400 prophets said, and they said, go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king, because you are mighty and you're wonderful, and who can stop you? Jehoshaphat wasn't really convinced. So 400 men, all prophets, say, yes, let's take it. And Jehoshaphat is saying, hmm, something's fishy. He said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides these? that we might inquire of him. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Yeah, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and he said, Hasten to Malchiah, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, and the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them what the king wanted to hear. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, made him horns of iron, and, and he said, Thus says the Lord, With these shall you push the Syrians, until you have consumed them. So that's pretty impressive. I mean, I'm, I'm here. If, that's, if I'm the king, this is music to my ears. I'm mighty. I've got horns of iron. I'm going to go to battle. I'm going to push them back. It's going to be wonderful. And, and everybody's going to see how my, my prowess. So Zedekiah uh, gave this wonderful prophecy. Thus says the Lord, With these shall you push the Syrians until you have consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, O king, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now the words of the prophets. They declare good unto the king with one mouth. They all agree. They're all politically correct. Let your word, I beg you, be like the word of one of them and speak that which is good. So political correctness is not new. It's as old as man, and, and, and really as old as Satan trying to force his will on man. So here, Micaiah has been given the heads up. All the prophets are of one accord. You need to say what they're saying, and let's, all, let's not cause trouble. And verse 14, Micaiah said, As the Lord lives... What the Lord has said unto me, that's what I will speak. I mean, that is impressive. 
I don't care. We are not careful to answer you in this matter, O king. What the Lord has given us, that's what we will speak. Verse 15. So he came to the king. And remember now the king is in all his regalia. He's sitting on his throne and and the, the king of Judah is beside him. And the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we forbear? And he answered him, go and prosper for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. I mean, that's what all the prophets are saying. And the king said unto him, how many times shall I beg you that you tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel. These are God's people. This is God's nation. These are the covenant people. Micaiah is saying, I saw the entire covenant nation scattered upon the hills. Something that they would just never believe. That they could be completely conquered. Micaiah is saying, I saw a vision where the covenant people were shattered. Upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. So the king is gone. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he would prophesy no good concerning me, but evil? So there's this view that the king has that because he's the king, there, there, must, no, there must be no bad news that comes to him. And I think that's just human nature. Sometimes we feel that because we are special, no bad news can come to us. And so he's very frustrated now that he didn't want to send for Micaiah. Jehoshaphat encouraged him. And now he's basically saying to Jehoshaphat, this is your fault. I mean, I told you I didn't want to hear from this guy, but you pushed me. Verse 18, and the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he would prophesy no good concerning me, but evil? And he said, hear you, therefore, the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner and another said on that manner. And there came forth the spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. So we heard this morning that Satan deceives the whole world. How? A lying spirit. That will go in, that will deceive all the prophets. So they all are in accord. They all agree. No problem. And it comes from a lying spirit. I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said... You shall persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. And the Lord has spoken evil concerning you. But Zedekiah, so he's now one of these prophets that's very outspoken, perhaps very um, uh, well regarded. But Zedekiah, the son of Canaan, went near and struck Micaiah on the street, on the cheek and said, which way did the spirit go from the Lord, from me 
to speak through you. So you can see the arrogance. I'm full of the Spirit, and now you're going to contradict me? So when did the Spirit leave me to go to you so that it could speak through you? So these uh, lying spirits, they deceive the prophets themselves. So it seems like Zedekiah really believed that he has the Spirit and he can speak the Word of God. And when he's contradicted, he's shocked to the point where he strikes Micaiah. And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see in that day. So he said, <laughs> this is the answer. You'll find out when you shall go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. That is not, the news is not good. And Syria will conquer Israel and you'll have to run for your life. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, unto Joash the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in the prison and feed him with bread, the bread of affliction and with water of affliction until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return at all in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, O people, every one of you. So tremendous pressure on Micaiah. The king of Israel is there. The king of Judah is there. All the people are there. 400 prophets are there. And it's all good news. No cause for alarm. And Micaiah has the backbone and the faithfulness to preach God's word. Even to the point of being assaulted, even to the point of being imprisoned, it doesn't matter. God has given me his word, and I'm going to deliver his word faithfully. And I don't care what the latest political rules are. All I know is, here's God's word. And he says here, if you return at all in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And this is the covenant people. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. The reason Micaiah could speak the word of God is he was not thinking of himself. The fact that he was assaulted, the fact that he was imprisoned, that wasn't top of mind for Micaiah. What was top of mind for Micaiah was to be a faithful messenger and to deliver. My, my job is to deliver the message. And that's it. You, you have to decide now what you do with the message. And you decide what you do with me. All of that is secondary. What's primary is my faithful deliverance of the message. Ezekiel 34. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Let's not be like ancient Israel that believes, you know, because we're the covenant people, only goodness can come to us. And everything we do is right. God is saying here to, first of all, to um, Micaiah, to tell the king that the whole nation will be shattered. My covenant people. And now he's saying to Ezekiel to prophesy, not against the heathen nations, but to prophesy against Israel's own shepherds. Against the shepherds of God, against those 400 prophets that have been trained to speak for God. Prophesy against them 
and say unto them, Thus says the Lord of God unto the shepherds. Woe. Woe is a profound word, brethren. Woe is a curse. You never want to hear from God's words or God's messengers, woe. Woe unto you. What we want to hear is blessing. Blessing unto you. But here, God is telling uh, Ezekiel to pronounce a curse on the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Here we see it again. This self-interest. Instead of being in the field, looking after the flocks, they are in the field feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and you clothe you with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. Why isn't the flock being fed? The disease you haven't strengthened. Neither have you healed that which was sick. It's, it's like God is walking through the flock and saying, I can't believe the condition. There's one sick here. That one's nearly starving to death. This one's got a broken leg. Where are the shepherds? Where is the care? Did, you're telling me you don't notice this? As I walk through the flock of Israel, it is a disaster. The people of God are embarrassing. I hope that doesn't offend you. But we have work to do. The point, the point of pointing that out is not to say uh, somehow we are superior. It's to say we have work to do. Wow. Do we care? As we take the Passover, do we care about the state of the Lord's body? This is the question. And this is what God is asking. Didn't you notice that the diseased haven't been strengthened? The sick have not been healed. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you bought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty, you have ruled them. You've, you've done the exact opposite of what I would expect from a shepherd. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. There's, there's nobody that cares. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Oh, beasts of the field, come on in and devour God's people because the shepherds are asleep and the ones that are awake are feasting. And when there's trouble, they only think of their own skin. They run for their lives. And so the sheep are wide open. So it's time for a feast. It's time to destroy God's people. Come on in. All of you. Every one of you. Come and destroy God's people. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and upon every high hill, yes, my flock, my flock, was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. It wasn't politically correct. You, you could get in trouble. If you go after God's people and try to feed them and try to nourish them and try to bind that which is broken and look after them, that's not politically correct. And you could lose your head for that. So better to look after yourself and leave the flock to be devoured. Verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, 
hear the word of the Lord. So again, like Micaiah, here's the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became meat to every beast of the field. So it's not that God stepped in to say this didn't happen. This happened. But because it happened, because there were no shepherd, there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds looked after themselves and didn't feed my flock. Therefore, O you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against my shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. So what that means is the flock will be slaughtered. Blood will be shed. But God is going to hold the shepherds accountable for that bloodshed. It's as if the shepherds went through and slaughtered the lambs of God themselves. And they will be charged with murder. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more My patience has run out, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. So this passage, brethren, Ezekiel 34, there there should be no chapter breaks. It's all one thought. It comes after Ezekiel 33. So God says to the shepherds, the murder of the sheep, I'm going to accuse the shepherds of that. So, so my own shepherds will be found guilty of slaughtering my sheep. That's what he says in 34. This is coming from 33. Let's go to Ezekiel 33, which uh, Daniel read to us. Let's now read it in the context that a lying spirit is in the world. And 400 prophets are standing up saying, everything's fine with Israel. There's no problem. You're going, to be, you're going to prosper. It's all good. And it's all from a lying spirit. And God says, wait a minute. Why are the beasts having access to my people? Where are the shepherds? Because the shepherds are asleep, slumbering, lying down, loving to sleep, And because they don't care about the sheep, then it's as if the shepherds themselves murdered my flock. Ezekiel 33. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, so his job now is to protect the city, If when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. So the job of the watchman is to stand on the wall and look for danger. And when he sees danger... His job is to warn the people. The beast is coming. The beast is coming to devour. Run for your lives. 
Now, if you ignore me, uh, you set me as a watchman and you ignore me. Well, if the beast comes and devours you, then that's on you. I'm not responsible. Okay. Verse 5. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he didn't take warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. So, so there is a responsibility here to watch. We heard that in the Bible study. And to detect danger. But if the watchman sees the sword come, and maybe it's not politically correct to blow a trumpet in the middle of the night, that might not go down too well. So he decides not to blow the trumpet. If that happens, you know, when we had our dog Kenya, we moved to the country, we had Kenya, and when we first got her, um, I, let her I put her bed in the, in the bedroom. So she had her bed in the bedroom. That was one night. And I was like, never again. Okay, I just licking and tossing around. And he's like, no. So her bed now was on the main floor. And we trained her to sleep on the main floor. So we would all go up to, uh, to bed at night. And she would go to her bed on the main floor. And that was great. Then in the middle of the night, out of nowhere, she would just start barking like crazy. Just bark, 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 bark. Just... And like you're trying to ignore her, and it's like she's not going to stop. So I'd have to come down, and I'm like, bad dog, bad dog. And then she would just kind of you know, realize she's being bad, and then just start again. After a while, it took me a while to figure out there are beasts in the field. And whenever these raccoons would approach the house, she was warning us that someone is approaching the house. And it doesn't matter. Her ears were wonderful. Her scent was wonderful. Anything that changed, she would bark to alert us. So I now learned when she barks, I need to come down and check things out. And that is the job of a watchman. That as the beasts are prowling, when they approach the house of Israel, the watchman is to bark. But here we see, verse 6, But if the watchman sees the sword come, we see it, but blows not the trumpet, and the people are not warned, And this is the issue, that the people of God think that there's no cause for alarm. And they're acting as if tomorrow will be like today. Because today is much like yesterday. No cause for alarm. And the watchman is basically saying the same thing. No cause for alarm. If the sword come, the people are not warned. So they're they're carrying on, complacent. Ignorant and not warned. If the sword come and take any person from among them. So you could imagine a a complacent Christian in the Brussels airport. I was in Amsterdam last week. I'm a complacent Christian. I have the Holy Spirit, but the television shows are more important to me than the Bible. And so when I should be studying the Bible, it's like, ah, I've got all the time in the world. I want to tune into, I don't know, whatever the latest TV show is. And then one show runs into another, and before you know it, five hours have passed, and it's time to go to bed. And that's how I live my life. But I come to services, and now I'm traveling. And instead of going to Amsterdam, I went to Belgium. And I'm at the Brussels airport, and Christ says, I will come upon you like a thief in the night. You won't know which way I'm coming. 
and I'm going to surprise you. The scripture says fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. So I'm at Brussels airport checking in, and suddenly there's a loud blast. And my head goes that way, and my legs go that way, and it's over. That's it. There's no rewind. Not even the God of Israel can rewind time. Time travels in one direction, period. There's no redo. So here we have complacency in the church. And somebody has to warn Israel to say, the sword is coming. Verse 6. If the watchman sees the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. My head goes that way, my legs go that way, and God charges the ministry with murder. Not the culprits, the ministry. That's what the scripture says. So you, O son of man, I have set you a watchman unto the world, unto the pagans. No, I've set you a watchman unto the covenant community, unto the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Just because we're the covenant community doesn't mean it's all happy, happy, happy. And everything we do is great, and God has to accept whatever we give him. God has very high standards. And God says to Ezekiel, I've set you as a watchman. Therefore, warn the covenant people from me. Judgment has been pronounced on the house of Israel. Go and tell them. And if they take not warning... He says to Habakkuk, make the vision plain, that he may run that reads it. But if they read it and they don't run, well, that's on them. So you, son of man, verse 7, I have set you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. You know, we just think God takes whatever we give him. He's saying, warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. If you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. And the scripture shows us, brethren, that the people of God, or there, is a, there are people of God, that will die in their iniquity. That is the unfortunate truth. Somebody has to warn them, God says, from me. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity. So it's the same thing, but you have delivered your soul. So you will not be charged with murder. Therefore, O you son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Speak to the covenant people. Thus you speak, saying, uh, this is what they're saying, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us and we pine away in them, how should we then live? So there was no choice. There's no uh, hope for us. 
Say unto them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn you, turn you from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? It's not God's will that any should be lost. And, and brethren, we would be naive if we were to say that everybody in the covenant community is 100% with the program. That would be naive. And God is saying it's not his will that the wicked die in their iniquity. Therefore, verse 12, son of man, say unto the children of your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And this uh, view that my Lord delays his coming is what causes the righteous to fall into transgression. And as iniquity abounds, it becomes easy for us to begin to adopt the iniquity around us. Because my Lord delays his coming. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sins. Jeremiah 7. This isn't new, brethren. It's not new because people are not new. Human nature is not new. So the way we behave today is very similar to the way ancient Israel behaved. And in fact, you know, you see some people want to blame the Jews because they, they were unfaithful to God as if they would do any better. Or we want to blame Adam as if we would do any better. Human beings are human beings. And when we're put in pretty much the same circumstances, our behavior is very predictable. And so look at Jeremiah. You know, when we were flying back from Tyler, we met a, a, an 85-year-old uh, German man named Herbert. Lovely man. 85 and, and very fit. Moved around very sprightly. And what I loved about him were his eyes. They were, they were bright. When you looked in his eyes, they, they, there was a glow in his, in his face. And just very pleasant, very easily, easy to smile. As we got talking to him and started to inquire about things, we realized he was a Jew. And he's on his way to Australia. And I asked him then, we were just talking about faith, and he says, you know, he doesn't believe in God. And in fact, he said, his wife, she, she's dead now. She died a year ago. She used to believe in God, but he turned her into an unbeliever. So I asked him, why doesn't he believe in God? And he said, I saw with my own eyes Germans tearing babies apart. And then he said to me, where was God? You see these little beautiful babies and you see them just being torn apart in front of your eyes. He says, where was God? I said to him, Herbert, that's the wrong question. And he said to me, so what's the right question? I said, the question you should be asking is, why were my ancestors unfaithful to the covenant? I said, you're the chosen people. 
And God made a covenant with you. And your ancestors broke that covenant. And God is faithful to his covenant. So God does exactly what he promises he would do. So the question you should ask is, why were my ancestors unfaithful? And you know what? That knocked him back. And as we talked later, and I forget exactly what it was, but I, I didn't accuse him, but I pointed out to him that he doesn't, that he, he, I said he shouldn't blame God for what happens on the earth. And he backed off and he said, you know, I don't blame God. So now he's acknowledging that there's a God. And at least now he's thinking. But, and then actually what he said is, you know, um, I don't want to be chosen. I don't want to be the chosen people. The burden is too much. Well, look at Jeremiah 7. There is a burden with being chosen. Jeremiah 7 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So, so don't go to some foreign nation and proclaim the judgment of God there. Come to where the people come to worship God and stand at the gate at the entrance and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So this is a message from God through Jeremiah to the people who are coming to assemble on the Sabbath day to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust you not in lying words. Again, here's this lying spirit again. Don't trust in lying words, saying it's all good. Here they're saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. So they had this view that as long as the temple was with them, it was like a a magic charm. And no harm could come upon them. And God is saying through Jeremiah, don't trust in that. So just because you have the temple, don't, don't feel secure. We could say in modern language, just because you're in the church, that's no reason to feel secure. Don't, don't have a false sense of security. Because there's a lying spirit that wants to deceive us. Verse 5, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, If you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after gods to other other gods to your hurt. In other words, if you keep the commandments, if you keep your part of the covenant, then will I cause you to dwell in this place. Then I'll keep my part of the covenant in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words, like uh, King Ahab and the 400 prophets. He's trusting in that. Sounds good. I like, I like the sound of that prophecy. Speak smooth things that, that sound good to me. I don't want bad news. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom you know not? In other words, break all the commandments. And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. So same thing we could say in modern language. Will you break God's commandments during the week? And then come and stand before God on the Sabbath day in the church, which is called by his name. 
and think that and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. How, how could that be? Well, because we're the people of God. And we have the temple. So no harm can come upon us. We're, we're chosen. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. But go you now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. In other words, my name was on Shiloh, and they trusted in Shiloh. Go take a field trip and go look at Shiloh today. And now... Because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not, and I called you, but you answered not. Therefore, while I do unto this house, so the same thing I did to Shiloh, which was called by my name, therefore, while I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done unto Shiloh. So, so we could actually extend this. As Shiloh went, so Jerusalem went. As Jerusalem went, so the church of God will go. That, that shouldn't be too hard for us to make that extrapolation. That just being called by God's name is not enough. We actually have to keep the commandments of God. We have to be righteous, amend our ways. Therefore, while I do unto this house, verse 14, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place which I gave to you, and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight. Doesn't that sound like Jesus writing to Laodicea? Saying, I will spew you out of my mouth. You trust that you're the church of God? And therefore you can be complacent and you can do whatever you want? No. Christ says, you, the Laodicean church of God, make me sick. And I will spew you out of my mouth. as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. You know, we can just run a little experiment in the church. Find three or four brethren and sit with them and say, you know, I think Barack Obama is a Muslim. And you'll get a reaction. Most likely, that's crazy. And then say, in fact, I remember the first person who told me that was Brother Ray. And that was my reaction. That's ridiculous. But then when you start looking into it, there's evidence. And so you could then say to them as they push back, you could say, have you heard of Takia? And explain to them Takia. And that you believe he could be a Takia Muslim. And you will see them defend Barack Obama. Most likely. Not all. If that happens, in the same conversation, say this. You know, Muhammad taught that he's the greatest prophet. He's the last and greatest prophet. They'll probably say, yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? And then say, you know, he, he teaches. There's, there's the fastest growing religion in the world. Every day there's, it's adding more. And their followers are taught that the reason Muslims have a right to Jerusalem is because Muhammad, in the middle of the night, 
Al-Barak, uh, this uh, half donkey, half mule, came to him with the angel Gabriel, and he got on it, and he flew from Mecca to Jerusalem in the middle of the night, where he went to Solomon's temple. Oops, forgot to mention that Solomon's temple was destroyed 530 years earlier, but he saw Solomon's temple. And from Solomon's temple, he ascended up to the seventh heaven to meet Allah. On the way, at the second heaven, he met Jesus Christ. And because he was greater than Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ asked him to lead him in prayer. And see the reaction that you get. It'll be probably something like this. Well, isn't that crazy? Well, there's an issue here. If you will take energy to defend President Obama, and you'll, say, you'll push back hard to defend a man that hates Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ is being denigrated with the fastest growing religion in the world, 1.6 billion followers and growing, being taught that a pedophile, a rapist, a murderer, a thief, a liar, and every, every commandment breaker is greater than Christ, there's no emotional reaction. Brethren, we should care about this. We should care about the name of our God and his honor more than we care about a criminal Pardon my, my, my language here. But Barack Obama should be in jail for treason. He should be in jail for treason. And we will defend him, but we don't care that Christ's name is denigrated. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. We must care about the name of God. And we must care about Muslims. I am very concerned, brethren, that many of the people thrown into the lake of fire will be Muslims. And I believe we need to reach them before it's too late. We need to show them the nonsense of the Quran and the beauty of the Bible. We need to show them the Quran cannot stand up to the Bible. And we need to lead them to Christ. And at least have them thinking as we have, uh, I have now Herbert, 85 years old, knocking on death's door. I mean, he's, I don't know how much longer he's, he's in good shape, but he's 85. I don't want him coming up in the resurrection if he's not called in this life, hating God. Because a lying spirit is going to be released before the second resurrection. And it's going to be very difficult. So we have to work with a sense of urgency today. Whether or not people are called now, whether or not they're in the first fruits, their minds are their minds, and they come up with these minds in the second resurrection. And we have work to do. Luke 13. I think we confuse God's patience with God's pleasure. Let's not confuse the two. God's patience is not the same as his pleasure. Luke 13.
verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So that's quite something. Again, Pastor Murray spoke about the Roman beast, the Roman Empire. Well, here we see it, mingling the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. That's, that's terrorism. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Do you suppose that the Belgians are greater sinners than anybody else? I tell you, no. But as Pastor Murray said in the study, what happened in Brussels can happen in Amsterdam, can happen in London, can happen in Toronto, can happen in Burlington. And it will. This is the nature of jihad. We have 1,400 years of data that shows once jihad lands, it just keeps intensifying until the land collapses. And it's here in Canada. I tell you, no, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think you that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Harsh words. But this is what the watchman does. He warns. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. So the fig tree, we could say, is the church. He plants the church, and he's expecting fruit. He comes and he inspects the church. There's no fruit. Then he said to the dresser of, this vineyard, of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it encumber the ground? And he answering said to him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that, you shall cut it down. This is, brethren, what I'm saying. Let's not confuse God's patience with his pleasure. The fact that the fig tree is given an extra year doesn't mean God is pleased with the fig tree. It means he's patient. But his patience runs out. And the church must produce fruit. In fact, we have a wonderful opportunity to produce fruit. If we have the boldness of the early church, if we have the boldness of the Holy Spirit, if we are cowards, then we're going to care about political correctness. If we are spirit-filled, we're going to care about delivering the message. That's what we're going to care about. Luke 6. What is happening in Europe, brethren, is very predictable. You'll remember a year ago when this uh, migration to Europe was announced, I said to you, they're going to rape the women, and we're going to see 9-11 terrorist attacks. 
sounded crazy at the time, but this is not rocket science. Muslims cannot think. They just execute what's in the operation manual. So if you read the Quran, if you read the Hadith, if you read the Sirah, you can predict precisely what's going to happen next. And what I'll tell you now is all of this, this these are just rehearsals. It's going to get worse. We are going to see a spectacular catastrophe in Europe. It is going to be spectacular. Because we have 1,400 years of data, and we have their operations manual. That tells us exactly what's happening and what they're doing. Luke 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So again, the study this afternoon with Pastor Murray saying there is one world religion coming. And you are going to be seen as evil if you do not cooperate with this answer to war. This is how we will have peace with this one world religion. And if you will not come on board, you will be seen as evil and you will be cast out from the company of men. And God says, rejoice. Where he said, woe to the shepherds, here he says, blessed. When all men hate you, you are blessed. Rejoice in that day, notice this, and leap for joy. This is how we react. When we see evil men waxing worse and worse, and when we see that hatred turned on us for Christ's sake, we leap for joy. For behold, our reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. So, Passover is coming, brethren. And Christ says that he is the good shepherd. He says that a hireling will run when a hireling sees the wolf coming. Why does the hireling run? Christ answered and he said, because he's a hireling. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what Christ did for us. But John 21 John 21. Just winding down. John 21. As Christ lays down his life, or as he laid down his life, notice John 21, verse 15. So he says, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down so I can take it up again. So, After his crucifixion, after his resurrection, notice now in John 21, verse 15. So when they had dined, this is now the resurrected Jesus. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, 
Do you love me more than these? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. That is what the good shepherd does. If Christ's spirit is operating in us, this is what we do. We don't feed ourselves. We feed Christ's lambs. And if we love God, we love his body. And we feed his body. He says unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said unto them, feed my sheep. He says unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. And then he goes on to tell him that, to tell Peter, you will be slaughtered. So Christ was slaughtered, but he says, take, eat, this is my body. So his whole focus was on feeding the sheep. Now he says to Peter, you will be slaughtered, feed my sheep. Be like me. How did, how did Peter feed the sheep? How did he feed them? Look at First Peter 4. As he was facing crucifixion. How did he feed the sheep? Did he think of himself? Did he run for the hills as a hireling? Because that's what a hireling does. Looks after himself. How did he feed the sheep? First Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice, 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 inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. So again, we know from the Bible study, Christ wins. There's a sort of temporary illusion that the beast is winning. All that means is we get to participate in Christ's sufferings. And in that, we, we leap for joy. And this is what, as Peter is facing his own crucifixion, his message to the church, leap for joy. Rejoice. Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when, in, when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It's almost like we should go out of our way, brethren, to be reproached for the name of Christ. Because if that happens, we are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a, you could say as a Muslim, as a jihadi, they're all doing these things. Don't get involved in this. Or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. And, and Christians will be humiliated, but don't be ashamed. But let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? 
be that obey not the gospel of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. That if it's according to the will of God, if, if, if we are like Micaiah, and they're asking, what, what does the word of God say? And we don't just de- deliver the politically correct answer. We deliver the message of God. If we are imprisoned because of that, if we are assaulted because of that, it doesn't matter. In, in fact, we rejoice because we are suffering as a Christian, not as a busybody, not as a murderer, not as a thief. If we suffer, not even a hair can fall from our head unless it's the will of God. Wherefore, let them suffer. Let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Let's conclude in Luke 6. The scripture says that all the virgins slumbered and slept. It is high time we wake up. It's high time we realize time is running out. It's high time we realize that God's patience isn't the same as his pleasure. That being given another year means get busy producing fruit. Because when he comes to inspect, if there's no fruit, that's it. Now, as we conclude in Luke 6, I'd like you to consider this. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. So until Christ returns, there will be a people that will be keeping the Passover. As the world intensifies, as the hatred of Satan intensifies, there are a people that demonstrate the love of God right up until he comes. John 13 says that he loved his own to the very end. Matthew 24, and and John tells us as well, that he that betrays me is at table with me. Matthew tells us that because iniquity shall abound, the love, the agape, will wax cold. So there are a people that gather every year to excel in agape and to demonstrate the love of God that as hatred and iniquity intensifies around us, we get better at understanding and demonstrating the death of Christ, how he loved his own to the end and he laid down his life for them. This is what we must embed in our minds. The shepherd doesn't run. He lays down his life for the sheep. The watchman doesn't run. He sounds the alarm for the sake of the people. As many are offended, as the love of many waxes cold, as many betray one another, let us this year as we keep the Passover show the Lord's death. That it was all about sacrificing for the sheep and loving them to the very end. Luke 6, verse 
we were in verse 23. He says, Rejoice you in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. So there's just going to be this reversal. Up will be down, down will be up, and the people of God will be exalted even though they've been humiliated. It says here, verse 25, Woe unto you that are full, for you shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Behold, he that betrays me is at table with me. This is what we're learning as we keep the Passover, how to love. We don't, we don't love conditionally. The Holy Spirit loves all the time, even our enemies. While we were enemies of Christ, he loved us. We love our enemies. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smites you on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that takes away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asks of you, and to him that takes away your good goods, ask them not again. As you would have men should do to you, do also unto them likewise. For if you love them which love you, what thanks do you have? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thanks have you? For sinners also do the same. And if you lend only to them whom you hope to receive, what thanks do you have? For sinners also lend to sinners and receive much as much again. But love your enemies. So as often as we keep the Passover, we show the Lord's death until he comes. He died for his enemies. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be you therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. This is a very high standard, brethren. I would say we fall short. Judgment is on the house of Israel. Judgment is on the church of God. This is not a time to not show up for work and think we can get away with it. This is a time when God needs laborers. And so, unlike Joaquin, who could get away for six years without showing up for work and still collect a paycheck, this isn't happening. Let's not confuse God's patience with his pleasure. So, brethren, let us figure out how we can work together as we roll into Passover and as we take the agape meal and the Passover, how we can love one another, how we can love our enemies, how we can nourish the church and warn the world so that if the wicked do not take warning, God will not require it at our hands. But he does say, those who turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars in heaven. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.